Welcome to Inside the Pastor's Study Podcast. I'm your host, Pastor Jeremy. I'm here with my dad. Pastor George Stevens. Yeah, we're a uh, father-son pastoral team uh, serving uh, at Marsh Corner Community Church in Methuen, Massachusetts, uh, which, you know, if you say that enough, it's a great way to test our audio uh, equipment using, you know, words like Methuen and Massachusetts, you can you know play with that a little bit. Hey, you know it's the only Methuen in the United States. Yeah, so. it, which is something because it seems like every other town name gets reused pretty frequently. It's Springfield. Yeah, <laughs> right, 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 right. So, but here we are. We're 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 broadcasting or recording today in our new studio. This has been part of the podcast plan for us. Uh, we have a room that's dedicated to doing things like this, and we're also going to be able to use this room for all kinds of uh, media production. Uh, coming in the not-too-distant future, uh, this podcast will also be in video form, and our, our plan is to be able to do that as a live broadcast each week, and then it'll get archived and sent out on our YouTube channel. So you'll be able to see us uh, live uh, but then also listen to us later and catch up with us either uh, on YouTube in the video form or through the podcast form. Uh, just uh, increasing the options uh, on, of connection and hopefully uh, getting a chance to hear some of these thoughts that we have on the podcast um, and spreading those out to other people. Because sometimes you just you hear something really good. This is how podcasts are, right? You hear something really good. You have a friend that said, oh, we've had this discussion before. Uh, they would really benefit from this, and you can send it on to them, and then they get to, it just enhances your conversation. And, and so that's one of our hopes with this, uh, this new format, using this new tool. We want to expand the church foyer, because uh, that's that place that, you, I, at least, you know, as I grew up, that's the place where you get to have some really cool conversations with people before church or after church. As you hang around the the, uh, the the deacons, the trustees, they start flipping lights off on you, trying to so that you get the hint and you leave the building. Um, but having some of those deep conversations are, are some of, are it's one of those things that makes the church the church, and and so we want to try and create that um, in a virtual format so that you can share with some, with us in some of these conversations and also share them with friends and hopefully springboard off onto some future conversations with them. So thanks for tuning in uh, and feel free to, uh, to do all of the things that people ask you to do with these sorts of uh, things, right? So uh, if, you're watch- if you're listening to us on, um, on iTunes or Spotify or, or any of the Google Music, we're, we're working on pushing the podcast out to any of those venues. So whichever one that you've downloaded us on and are listening to, um, doing a, a, a like and a review helps uh, us uh, get into the ears of more people, and that would be a great thing. We hope for that. So um, a lot of that's coming soon. Uh, the, the, the video podcast is coming soon. We'll let you know when that's on its way. Um, and uh, we also want to be able to interact with you um, and, and interact with some of your questions. We just finished a couple of episodes talking about uh, the book of Galatians. We finished an episode uh, talking about the I am statements in the book of John. And if you have questions about that, you can always email us podcast at marshcorner.com. And uh, we'll, we'll take some time to respond to those. So that's marsh, M-A-R-S-H, corner.com. Um, like I say, like the soggy wetland. That's where we are. Yeah. Right. So uh, go ahead and, and, and click into that and, uh, and communicate with us, and we'll try and integrate that into future episodes. So we're here uh, 
beginning a new multi-episode series about how denominations came to be, at least a lot of the major denominations, where they came from and why they exist and what some of the differences are between those. And this comes out of one place for me and another place for you, PG. And so from my side, I'll talk about where this interest comes from me, and then you can kind of kick off what started this ball rolling for you as well. But I've heard throughout my years in pastoral ministry this wonderful thought or sentiment that sounds great, the, the, the thought of like, why is it that there are so many denominations when we're all Christians? Is it because we just can't get along and that's just this... Um, you know, is that a good testimony, really, that there's a First Baptist Church on one corner and a, you know, 15th Baptist Church on the next corner, or, you know, that you're a Presbyterian and I'm a Methodist and he's an Arminian, whatever that is, and, you know, there's, then there's the Seventh-day Adventist guys who, you know, they get to share a building with someone else because they meet on a different day, and, you know, like, you have all of these different things, and, you know, wouldn't it be better if there was just Christianity and the church and why is it that we have so many different denominations? And I hear things like that, and I say, like, I, I kind of get that, and, and I, I value that heart, uh, but I also know that some of those distinctions are helpful sometimes and, and, and are, are, are worth learning about. So that's kind of where I'm coming from, but, but you've started this study a while back, starting doing this research. What, was, right. what well, instigated that for you? So a couple of things. One of them is uh, even when I was in seminary, uh, one of the things that we dealt with or talked about in seminary was that there's a difference between denominations and denominationalism. Okay. okay? So denominations exist because, uh, bottom line here, is that do- denominations exist because uh, while the Bible has a singular meaning, we as uh, fallen sinners still deal with it in an interpretive structure, and we we find people who have similar interpretive structures to us to uh, to gather together and to read and to enjoy and to worship. If if all of us gathered together as one uh, with a sync, you know, and we had forced upon us an interpretive structure, we would struggle with one another, and the church would be divisive and would probably fall apart. So instead, what denominations do is they give us the opportunity to find people who have the same mind and the same interpretation um, in the grand scale of uh, all of Christianity. Now, the more recent stimulus for me was uh, a member of our congregation who just came to me and said, you know, why don't we do a study uh, on why there are so many different denominations and what the denominations are and how do they function? And uh, that that was interesting to me because while I've thought about it, while I've done a lot of you know study on it, I thought, well, this this should be easy. And uh, and I I started putting something together, and I, I have to say, in I think it's been about five years. In five years, I I still haven't come to a place where I can say that the work is finished. Um, there's just so many things about um, American religion and American denominations that um, defy understanding and just how it's it's not that they defy understanding I guess let me change my words it's 
it's that they're very difficult to put into categories that uh, everyone would necessarily understand. So, so we have a growth and a flourishing of Protestant denominations in the United States because of some very distinctive moments in our history that make those denominations a reality. Okay. So we're going to dig into some of those historical moments and then maybe understand those denominational splits or, or evolve, those, how they evolve over yeah, time because of those. Yeah, evolution is a good evolution. word. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's good. I, um, <laughs> you know, you're talking about having these, uh, these different camps that help, you know, this, these, these uh, interpretive camps is what I'm hearing. And, you know, this is not just some sort of like spiritual clickism, you know, like I'm going to go and hang out with my friends and you hang out over there with your friends and just leave us alone so that we can get along. Uh, it feels like the negative spin on, on what you were just saying on gathering with like interpretive issues. Right, right. And, you know, it, it, not all clicks are bad. Um, that's kind of an unusual, maybe that's an unusual bounce for some of us, but uh, clicks, if you will, or groupings of people that we get along with and understand well, uh, that's, uh, that's just basically how the world forms. Uh, we are all relational. doesn't mean we all have to be in good relationship with everybody in our world. And, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so it's kind of, I like to think of it more along the lines of, like, I'm, I'm, I love baseball, and I'm a Yankees fan. And, and I that's love, really bad being yeah, here in Massachusetts. Yeah, we live just, you know, we're about a half hour north of Boston, and so there's some, com there's some complications with that. Um, but with those passionate Red Sox fans, and, and myself being a passionate Yankees fan, um, we have a common, bound in, a common bond in the joy of baseball, and uh, we enjoy we enjoy ribbing on each other a little bit, but we just, we love the game. And, and so there is this connection that we have, even though we root for separate teams. And so is it more like that? Like we were, there are different teams that exist, but ultimately the connection of Christ makes us all root for one another in, in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. Quite a bit like that. In fact, we, we talked about this, um, in one of our first, um, podcasts, we, right. we talked about how, there is this central core of, of truth uh, that all of us who are, um, I'm going to say all of us that are Protestant, but we're going we're gonna to have to unpack that a little bit over yeah. time. But there is this central core of truth that we grasp and hold on to that, that uh, unite us. And I would even go so far, and, and at this point, you know, some of you might actually turn me off, who knows? Uh, but there is actually some central core of truth that unite us even as Protestants to uh, Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodox Catholicism uh, because those those things are some things that we have in common and those commonalities unite us. Sure. You know, uh, eventually, yeah, we get, uh, we get a little further out as far as interpretive issues are concerned and I would even say that on the inside of that, or excuse me, on the outside of that inside ring, there are some things that really distinguish us and that are basic principles of the faith that just, well, divide us. Okay. 
Yeah. So we're going to, you've mentioned this is a five-year-long study for you. We're going to try and keep it from being a five-year-long podcast. Yeah, that would be great. Um, but we do want to hit some of these highlights, and maybe this creates better conversation uh, both among our congregation and then, you know, wherever you happen to be tuning into us from, uh, you can hear that and maybe bring that to others and say, like, okay, so this is what I know so far about how history and the church have interacted and, and, and go from there. So um, we want to start... Uh, you mentioned this last week. You you mentioned something about starting with Christopher Columbus. This was our our little teaser, yeah. And how he changed the church, or, or why the church changed because of Columbus. And, and you have me curious too. So, what's Christopher Columbus have to do with uh, where I'm sitting today in in church in America? So, I think that one of the things that Christopher Columbus does is he gives us a starting point. Um, good stories have a starting point, and. Uh, I've, I've watched Christopher Columbus be maligned a lot lately, and uh, uh, we don't realize just how much of a starting point he is, because what Christopher Columbus does is he makes it okay to explore and find something outside of Europe. He gives the, he gives the permission to Europe to expand beyond its borders, and Europe was, Europe was struggling. Europe was uh, struggling with uh, internal strife and so on. And uh, what Columbus does is he opens up the door to maybe find some other ways of handling some of the issues that are uh, rife in Europe and, and struggling with. So, so Columbus goes south, and um, Spain takes their lead from Columbus, and they, they colonize the Caribbean, they colonize Central America, they colonize South America. Um, and their colonization is a a colonization that is focused on on bringing Spain as much glory as possible. So there's uh, there's the mining of wealth, there's uh, the enslavement of the local peoples, um, always converting them to Roman Catholicism because uh, another overlap here is that uh, at that moment in time, um, Spain was going through something um, that was made kind of popular by Monty Python called the Spanish Inquisition. Mm, mm-hmm. So uh, anybody, Nobody expects that. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. So uh, the Spanish Inquisition actually spreads to South America, and any, any Indian tribe in South America that would not become Roman Catholic under the Spanish Inquisition uh, was murdered. Hmm. Uh, and uh, and so that that's something that you have going. But in the north... Um, Columbus, uh, 1492, 1497 is basically when he does his explorations. Uh, England under Henry the Henry the Seventh actually sends out um, a an explorer named Henry Cabot, and he explores uh, the the coast of North America. He explores all the way from uh, Georgia all the way up to Nova Scotia, and in his discoveries, he's looking for land to put people on, mm-hmm. uh, not, not necessarily to find, uh, and he's also looking for a passage to India. That was always the big, the big move to, to find that Northwest Passage. England ceases to look at any kind of colonization under Henry VIII. He has no interest in it. But here's the deal. Christopher Columbus is in 1492. Mm-hmm. Some 30 years later, there is a monk in Germany who is concerned about some of the standards, some of the things that, that 
Roman Catholicism upholds, and he has 95 issues that he needs to discuss. And he nails those 95 issues to the door of a church in Wittenberg so that there can be some conversation about it. Martin Luther is less than 30 years away from Christopher Columbus. Now, I think of that in this way. Um, it is currently 2021, and I, I think of what I was doing in 1992. And, uh, Selling the ocean blue? No, no, exactly. So, in, you know, in 1992, I mean, that, that was, was... 30 years ago? I thought it was 10 years ago, 1990. Yeah, see, that's how that goes. It's yeah. 30 years. But it, just like that, I mean, those 30 years are years that, that I understand and I watched... And I lived, we, we all, many of us lived those years. And it made me understand that Columbus is operating in the same context, in a sense, as Martin Luther, or mm -hmm. Martin Luther is operating in the context of Christopher Columbus. Europe, after Martin Luther, descends into warfare. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is where a lot of people get the idea that, um, that, religion starts wars hmm. because there is a hundred years from 1519 all the way up until about 1620 when Europe is on fire. And the basis of that fire is, are you Protestant or are you Roman Catholic? Hmm. And those, those lines are drawn and redrawn and ballasted. And in the midst of that, England becomes a Protestant country when it had been a Catholic country. And at the same time that it becomes a Protestant country when it had been a Catholic country, it becomes a divided Protestant country. Uh, Scotland in the north is Presbyterian. England in the south is Anglican or Church of England. Uh, and yet there are also these groups like, uh, like the followers of a, a man named Brown, who uh, have a church in Plymouth, England, and they are tortured by the king because they don't obey the rules of the Church of England. They, they want to be separate. They want to be separatists. Many of you have heard of John Bunyan, uh, who wrote the book Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan wrote that book while he was in prison because he refused to call the king of England the uh, head of the church. He believed that Christ was the head of the church. So you have groups that are starting in England, like the Anglican Church, like the Presbyterian Church, like the Baptist Church, like the Puritans who begin within the English Church and say, uh, this is too Catholic. We need to purify the way we worship. We need to get rid of some of these uh, idols and the gold trappings and all of the things that are unnecessary in our worship service, uh, they, we need to purify those things. So you have Puritans inside the church, you have Puritans outside the church, you have all of these divisions on this one little island. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Let alone all of Europe, which is also struggling exactly. on a much larger picture. Exactly, because in Europe you've got Lutherans and you've got Reform, Re the Reformed Church in Switzerland, and you have... Uh, you have a, a church called the Moravian Church that's going to play a part in uh, American uh, history uh, forming in Poland. And you have a guy named Menno Simons who says, we, we don't want any of that. We don't want any of the world's trappings in our lives. We're going to separate ourselves from the world. 
uh, and uh, they become the Mennonites. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have all of these all of these groups, even in Europe. But England is tight, and and Queen Elizabeth the first, and then James the first make a decision. The decision is: we know that there is land on the other side of the ocean. We need to move some of our people there so that we can start trading in that area we can start growing more crops we can start finding out we can start expanding out of the island that holds us tight and their best idea is let's send the poor and let's send the religiously divided people from here so that we don't have to worry about them anymore so that's that's really one of the foundations of American history that we don't even realize, and that is England is looking to send as many of the radical Protestants as they can out of the country so that they can consolidate power under the king and gain control of the nation. That goes really well for them in like the mid-1700s and all those radical Protestants kind of evolve into angry colonialists, huh? Exactly. And see, those ang- that's the thing about those angry co- colonialists. So many of those colonies are, are still Church of England. I mean, people, did, you didn't have to be, uh, you know, when you were poor, you, you could still be Anglican. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, many of the southern colonies, Virginia, South Carolina, North Carolina, uh, Georgia, um, those are all colonies that are established by the Anglican Church, and the Anglican Church is impor- important in it. Uh, but up until 1730, the Anglican Church actually didn't even have a bishop overseeing the 13 colonies. Hmm. So in 1730, uh, all of a sudden, um, the Church of England starts looking at the colonies, the 13 colonies, who are all operating basically under their own religious system. There are Anglican priests in the southern colonies. They're uh, in in uh, the New York area. You have uh, you actually have a lot of Dutch uh, and Dutch Reformed religion. Is uh, the Dutch Reformed uh, denomination is important there? You you have Quakers who have spread uh, through Pennsylvania. You have Baptists that have spread through Pennsylvania as well as Rhode Island and Connecticut. And, and then you have all of those Puritans uh, who have expanded up here into New England who have now changed their name from just being the Puritan Church because that wouldn't really sit well with them. They call themselves the Congregations of Churches. Uh, and all of those have been growing without any oversight from the Church of England. And in 1730, the Church of England said, you know, this isn't very good. We need to send a bishop to oversee the colonies and not only that, we, we need to send, we need to let the colonies, especially the New England colonies, know that they can't just live as Congregationalists and in their own denomination anymore. We are going to want them to come back into the Anglican Church and be, and be subject to the rules of the crown and to the, and to the archbishop. So 1730 actually creates a, a major conflict between the religious focus of Protestants in the, United, in the, in the new colonies and the, uh, the mother country, England. It, it, 
it may very well be one of the root causes, whether we realize it or not, of the revolution that's about to happen 40 years later. So I'm just thinking, as you're going here, I'm thinking like how close you have uh, Martin Luther and Columbus, you know, a 30-year difference. And for, for most of us um, listening over the age of 30 anyway, we, we can see that that's not really a, a lot of time. But then what we just covered was a hundred years of history. Um, I was, uh, over the weekend, we were, had the chance to visit Kim's grandfather, who's 96. And uh, we, were, we, we were picking his brain on different stories of when he was younger, because we don't know how much longer we're going to have pop-up. And we wanted to get as many of these stories in as we could. And uh, he was there sharing with our girls the, the experience of going to school in a one-room schoolhouse in central Pennsylvania. And... Um, his father um, eventually had gotten sick. He started driving him to school um, in their Model T because that's what you had, you know. And they were in the, and he said, you know, nineteen. He was born in nineteen twenty six, um, and then you know, not long after that, after the Model T, they got a new Model A, and, and he, you know, he remembers that distinctly. And then the next car after the Model A, he said, was the uh, the nineteen forty Flathead Ford. Um, which I was like, oh, that's just, I wish you still had that yeah. car, right? Um, but it, it, he, it, so many cool stories of him sharing this. And, you know, he's, he talked about what it was like to be, uh, to enlist in the Navy at the end of World War II. And, and I'm listening to these stories that are an entirely different era from me and thinking about how much our nation has changed in the hundred year lifespan of, of, of my, um, grandfather-in-law i think that's the right yeah so uh, and so but you know, you have the the beginnings of the united states you know 1620 you've got plymouth rock and you know so we're looking at 110 years 1730 um, between the the pilgrims landing in massachusetts and um this this um this attempt of, by england to reunite the colonies underneath the religious um uh, rule of of the of the king, and so a hundred years of church history, especially with all of this rapid change um, in the colonies, must have felt so drastic. No, it was. It was very. It was very drastic, and and yet there were things happening here in the colonies that um, also were creating conflicts. Uh, for example. Um, you know, in a hundred years, so you have the Puritans. Let's say you go to Plymouth Rock in 1620. You have that that uh, that Plymouth group. By the way, the Plymouth group were not Puritans. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. The Plymouth group, the Plymouth group were separatists. Mm -hmm. um, they would be more in line with uh, perhaps what we would think of as Baptists mm. in their separatism. Uh, the the Puritans that eventually come. Uh, like within within ten years of those of those separatists, the Puritans are they're still within they still like the Church of England for the most part, but they want the Church of England to change. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, the other thing they're they're very Calvinistic they're very focused, uh, but over time what happens is you get a second generation. Um, and you know one of the things that we emphasize in in our beliefs is that uh, salvation is something that's chosen individually. It's not it's not something that you merit uh, because of your goodness. It's also not something that you gain because uh, your parents are Christians. 
You know, no one, no one ever had, no one has a spiritual grandfather per se. You, you get saved and you start your relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's not based upon what your parents do. It's based upon what you do. So not merited or inherited. Not merited or inherited. And, and what you have starting in the colonies now is that you have a growing number of people by 1730 who have actually left the congregational church. They, they would say of themselves, oh, my, my parents were Puritans or my parents were Congregationalists. Uh, or e- even even in the you know in the Middle Atlantic colonies, you have people who are saying, "Well, you know, I, my parents went to the Reformed Church, or my parents went to the Presbyterian Church, because a lot of Scotsmen also landed there in, in uh, New Jersey and Pennsylvania, and or my my parents were Quakers, or it, they have this connection, this loose connection to the church because." Here's another aspect of Protestantism over Catholicism, and that is that in Protestantism, there's this decision that has to be made by the individual to trust Christ, uh, but there's also the reality that you don't, you're not a part of the church just because your parents were. Um, there's that idea that begins in Protestant movements. Now, Anglican churches in the South, they... They are still, um, they're still baptizing their infants. They're still doing the confirmation issue. Confirmation is part of many of these sects of, or these denominations. But you can walk away from the church and not be part of the church. Whereas in Catholicism, you are always a Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, so these Protestants who were... They were congregational. They, their parents were congregational. They were Presbyterian or Anglican or even Quaker. Now we've got this growing segment of the American population that has a background in Christianity, but they're not Christians. Hmm. Um, in the North, here in New England, that creates some issues. For example, um, in in Congregational New England, if you were not a member of the Congregational Church, um, if you were not in communion with the Congregational Church, then you didn't have a right to be buried, hmm. because the, the graves were the graveyards were all owned by the Congregational Church. So now we've got a conflict because we have people who are a hundred years into this system who are no longer part of the church and therefore have no right to be buried anywhere and different things happen to that. Uh, But you also have a man um, named Stoddard, Charles Stoddard, who um, is, he's on the frontier. And the frontier is Springfield, Massachusetts. Yeah, way out there. Yeah, way out there. It still feels like a different state. Yes, yeah, yeah. So he's on the frontier near Springfield, Massachusetts, uh, and he does something crazy. He, uh, he offers communion to individuals who are not members of the local church, and that creates a great deal of conflict because uh, people like Cotton Mather and Increase Mather, who are heads of the church, they think that that's just, well, it's heresy. Hmm. Uh, why would anybody offer communion to somebody who's not a member of a local church? How do you know that they're saved or not saved? Um, and Stoddard says the, the goal of worship is also to introduce 
salvation to those who need to make that choice and to open the communion to those folks and allow them to participate uh, means that they also are open to receiving Christ by the message that's given. So a quick recap and summary here. There's lots of data here, right? Yeah. There's a lot there, right? It seems like when people when cultures are first arriving in the United States, they're they're mostly homogenous. Like you have a group of Scots who will inhabit a certain geographic space. And we see this in American history, right? Like you know um, my, my wife has a, has a German background. It makes total logical sense that she would have lived near Philadelphia because Germans came and settled in that area. Um, and um, you see that in a lot of areas in the United States. If you're going to go into Southie, you know, here near Boston, you have a pretty good idea that the St. Patrick's Day parade is important, right? Like right, there's right, all of these. Right. Um, so you start the church, bring, as those groups come over, um, as families and friends and communities all traveling together to, in, to, to colonize a new area, uh, the place that they all worshiped together and their beliefs also came with them. And so you start off with um, a, uh, a, a, a um, I don't know, this, this mosaic of faith backgrounds because there is a mosaic of cultural backgrounds. But then when you hit the United States, uh, you're saying a couple of things happen, right? There's this blending because now you're not living across national lines. You're just, you're living in different towns and areas. So there is a blending, but there's also, as kids come and future generations come, there is uh, less um, of a tie to those uh, cultural faiths. And so you have, you have people who are just walking away from the church but you also have people who are interacting with different expressions of the church, and you're seeing a blending. To some extent, yes. You, you use the word mosaic. I kind of think of it, yeah, as a mosaic, like tiles. Yeah. So the tiles don't actually dissolve in a mosaic. They mm -hmm. blend with other tiles. So, But you may have, you do have individuals who don't fit. It's just like more like watercolors? Um. Yeah, well, there's depths and shades. Yeah, there's depths and shades. But, for example, you're right. If if you're Scottish, probably um, probably England is going to want you to colonize in uh, in um, the Philadelphia area, uh, the New Jersey area, uh, the Northern Virginia colony. Uh, those are those are where the Scots are going to be most likely. The the Congregationalists and and the the Puritans flood the zone, and part of that is something that we as Americans don't realize or grasp, and that is that um, there was a civil war fought in England um, in the in the middle of the 17th century, uh, where even the King of England, Charles I, uh, is beheaded mm -hmm. by a Puritan named Oliver Cromwell. And many Puritans uh, moved to the colonies. They moved to Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, uh, because in that era, Puritanism was popular, but also there was a recognition that a day of reckoning was probably going to come because the country was split. So, so England exports Puritans, mm -hmm. loads of Puritans. 
But again, like you said, you're going to settle where the people are that you like and know. Um, yeah, there's also, um, there's also other people that come and join that group. There are, uh, for example, there are um, black Africans who are brought in uh, all across the 13 colonies as, as slaves and houseboys, but also, I mean, uh, along that same socioeconomic and cultural level, there are Irish who are brought in uh, from Ireland as slaves and houseboys. So y you do get some Irish mix throughout all of those things. It would kind of be like the grout that's holding the tiles. <laughs> okay, sure. Okay. Uh, but generally speaking, there, there are some real hot spots in those 13 colonies of very specific denominational thought. And if you're outside of that denominational thought, there's no room for you. Right. I mean, you see that, for example, in the forming of Rhode Island and Connecticut. Rhode Island is started by Roger Williams, who is a, a Baptist, but not kind I'm going to have to say not a Baptist the way most of us think of, like Southern Baptists or Baptists. That's, that's something else. Uh, but Roger Williams is a Baptist, and he, he has no, there's no room for Roger Williams in the Massachusetts colony. Uh, Roger Williams had been a, a pastor of a church uh, in Salem, Massachusetts, which is a hotbed of Puritanism. Um, and he was run out because his his theories or his his beliefs about um, participation in the local church uh, were contrary to what the Puritans in Salem believed. So there's really very little room for distinction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you get driven out pretty quick. So so you so you have that, and then you also have generational decay generational decay. And so that brings us back to where you just were with the, with with the thought of open, an open communion. Open communion. Um, and, and that comes out of a pastoral heart that says that there are people here, we're not all just Christians automatically anymore. There are people here who need to know Jesus. Exactly. And, and so it's like, was this the first seeker-sensitive movement of like America? Like, <laughs> Yeah, you know, and he was treated as one of the first seeker-sensitive people too. Um, you know, Stoddard, Stoddard's no slouch. He was... Uh, he was the librarian of Harvard. Hmm. All right. Um, he was very well thought of um, in the Puritan community, but um, the Puritans, I mean, here, here was the thought, okay? The, the Puritans of Boston decided that since Stoddard was working way out on the edge, on the frontier, uh, that we didn't, they didn't have to worry about what was happening in Northampton, the town that, uh, the town that Stoddard preached in. They didn't have to worry about that because it was just so far away from uh, anything that really mattered. And so uh, big changes. I mean, Stoddard's reaching people. He's, people are getting saved, if you will, baptized, joining the, or rejoining the, uh, the congregational church um, in, uh, in droves. Hmm. Uh, but actually, Stoddard, I mean, Stoddard opens his communion, I think probably the best claim to fame that Stoddard has to anything in this world other than being librarian of Harvard is that um, he's the father-in-law of um, Jonathan Edwards. Oh, all right. Okay. Yeah. Jonathan Edwards is, uh, is it comes out of the Stoddard family. So uh, that's, that's really his claim to fame. So he lays down this idea for Edwards that, uh, that 
perhaps, if you will, just because you're part of a congregation, uh, it doesn't mean you're saved. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that Edwards picks up on. Yeah, Edwards has, you know, he's got a few words to say about where, you know, where people are and what they believe and or don't believe and where their eternity is without without Jesus, right? Right, right. And, and Edwards is that guy who, if you're, a, if you're a theologian nerd, you've spent some time wading through him. Um, you know, and the more you like Edwards, I think the more, the longer your beard is. But the, uh, yeah, uh, there's uh, a, there's uh, a lot of love for that. So, so. All right, so pretty fascinating thing here. So we've just covered, uh, what, a few hundred years? 200 years, yeah. Of, of church history, kind of getting us to this space in American history where we're seeing some of these, what are the beginnings of these denominational differences? And I think a lot of those are rooted in um, diverse cultures, you know, as we've referenced, right? You have, you have different regions of England, you have different regions of, of mainland Europe, um, and so, you know you, you have you have the Swiss and the Calvinists. You have the Lutherans out of Germany, and you have um, you you've got all of these different divisions within England itself. Um, you have you also have the Spanish Catholics that are continuing to do their thing in the colonies. You have Maryland from Maryland, that, and right. you have English um, Catholics, right? English Catholics, and you, I, I guess it was further south than you. You have like Florida and all of that. Right. Um, so you have all of those. Um, different groups that are coming here to the United States, but because of the way that the colonies are evolving, um, you're also seeing some of this blending of faiths as well. So you get to a guy like Edwards. Also, you have like the tools of the printing press and all those things that are, that are helping create this uh, ability to learn from other groups. Um, and then we're into 1730. England is trying to reassert some control over the, the diversifying religious landscape. Um, and what happens from there? Well, some interesting things, but let me just go back and cut, catch one thing, okay? Um, the colonies, the 13 colonies, really break down into... You, you have it all here. I mm -hmm. mean, in those five, 13 colonies, you do have, you do have uh, English Catholics under Lord Calvert in, in Maryland, but you have, you have Anglicans in the South, and you have uh, a mixed bag of... Uh, Dutch reformers who draw their lines to Calvin in uh, the mid-Atlantic states. You mm, have, mm -hmm. you have, uh, s you actually have some Lutherans from Sweden who uh, establish a colony uh, in Delaware that is subsumed under the uh, uh, subsumed under uh, William Penn. They both had the same land, so Penn, being a, a very much focused as a Quaker on tolerance, allows those those uh, Lutherans to, survive, to, to stay there. You have uh, Scots, Scotsmen that land in, uh, in um, New Jersey. You have, like we've talked about, some Baptists, and uh, we talked about um, Congregationalists. Here's the deal. All but those, all but those uh, Maryland Catholics, they're all Protestant. So what you have in the 13 colonies is the first Petri dish of pure Protestantism. Hmm. Okay. Because all of the other nations, all of the nations of Europe, even the Protestant ones, even the Lutheran, the Lutheran foundations of Germany, the, the Anglican foundations of, of England, the Reformed foundations of uh, Switzerland and the Low Countries... They all start 
with Roman, Roman Catholicism, and Roman Catholicism is the structure and format of their religion, and they are protesting that. They are, the, the Protestant churches are standing against stuff. When the colonies start, the colonies are, we are Protestant, and since there's no real oversight from any outside source, from any national or government source as to what that Protestant church is supposed to look like, the Protestant churches in the United States, those five main groups, they all form a very different Protestantism from what you see in Europe. Sure, because they have an entirely different life experience totally. than what Europe does. Exactly. Without any of the oversight, remember, no bishops until 1730. So a completely different experience and different structure. Uh, the Anglican Church in the, in the colonies in Virginia and North and South Carolina focus their attention on reading Scripture because they don't have necessarily uh, even, even uh, Anglican priests or bishops to oversee what's supposed to happen. So it's a wild Protestant church that grows here, and that wild Protestantism uh, is very foundational. It, it, it almost rejects out of hand the idea that government should be involved in church in any way. Hmm. Which is going to get us to the revolution. Exactly. exactly. So I want to I try and create some... Um, podcast um, episode divisions here. Okay. Um, and so talk to me a little bit about what, what we're thinking about a four episode arc here, give or take. We may expand this. We'll see how it goes. So we just covered pre, pre, definitely pre-revolution America and, and the, the, the way that the Protestant church has its roots in that um, in the United States. And we're, we're, we're approaching um, the revolution, but we're not quite there. So at what point, what do you think, like next episode, where would we be? What, what are some of the things that you think we're going to cover? So in 1730, the tree of religion in the United States splits into two branches. Hmm. And I'm not talking about Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. Protestantism in the United States splits into two branches. Because in 1730... Uh, under men like Jonathan Edwards, but also under uh, men like Gilbert Tennant. He, Edwards is not a single man. Mm -hmm. He's not the only author of what's going to happen. But what's going to happen in 1730 is that there's going to be a great awakening in the United States. And that great awakening in 1730 is going to lead to the revolution. Mm. And that great awakening is going to lead to a, many of the things that we in churches in the United States continue to do. And then after that Great Awakening, there's a second Great Awakening. And that second Great Awakening is going to change the way churches interact with those who aren't in churches. Okay. Um, just as an idea, one of the things that comes out of the second Great Awakening is just what we started talking about this morning, and that is why can't we all be one denomination? Okay. And there's actually going to be a movement during the Second Great Awakening to do that. Okay. Okay? All right. Uh, and then from the Second Great Awakening, I think that we see a series of revivals 
uh, a series of revivals in the church that begin with uh, an idea of we need to be more holy. Um, and then an idea of, of revival in the church that says we need to be more vocal about our relationship with Christ. And all of those things that if you were going to look at those four arcs, I would say you know, 1730 to 1800 for the first great awakening, uh, 1800 to 1870 for the second great awakening, mm-hmm. 1870 to say 1930 for the idea of holiness. And then uh, I would actually move to like 1950 to the present to uh, should the church be more vocal about our relationship with Christ. All right. So there are some divisions on things that are coming up, some things to tune into and, and uh, maybe do some background research on before we get there. But in the coming weeks, we hope to cover some of those uh, big arcs. And we do our best to distill all of this down. You know, There's years of research, and we're still not through it. Um, but distill all this down into things that kind of help us trace some patterns in how the church has gotten to where it is and also maybe... Um, create some kind of idea in those of you listening to say like, oh, I think there's something missing in my own faith experience or something missing in how um, our, my own church is, is interacting with scripture and with Jesus and with the outsider. And um, hopefully all of this, the goal of all this really is to help us by knowing where we've come from, better understand where we're supposed to go. So uh, tune in with us in, in future episodes as we cover some of those things. And again, if you're interested in, uh, if you have questions about any of this, podcast at marshcorner.com. And uh, we'll try and interact with those in a future episode. Thanks for joining us. Bye. You've been listening to Inside the Pastor's Study Podcast, hosted by Pastors George and Jeremy Stevens. Cover art by Caitlin Gallagher. Music by Sammy Kay. To find out more about us, head to marshcorner.com.